Hiya, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm in a very good mood this week. Um, had a lovely picnic with my students up near LSE yesterday. A classic British picnic in that it was cloudy and one minute it was hot and one minute it was cold. But there were about 30 of us and it was just a lot of fun meeting face to face and not trying to teach each other anything. It was great. Um, we timed it carefully because we're just finishing the marking. Hooray! But we haven't given them the scores, so they couldn't come and lobby us. Um, and it, it was it, it was just a very relaxed, pleasant afternoon. So thanks to those who showed up. Um, on with the blogs. Um, started with the customary links I liked, which were mainly actually visuals this week. A lot of uh, a lot of um, photos and, and videos. One I quite liked was um, they've erected a statue to Mrs. Thatcher in her hometown of Grantham. And um, it got egged on the first day. People were throwing eggs at it. Um, uh, and uh, there's a, a picture circulating, which is obviously a stunt of someone dressed up uh, selling eggs at 10 pounds each next to the statue. Um, the thing that gave him away was it was 10 pounds an egg, which is just you know, ridiculous. But also because he had those braces on, which were very popular in the 80s when Thatcher was in power. Although he got the color wrong, they were orange. And it was always red braces with um, uh, in the 80s. But there we go. It was, but it was funny. And I like that. And made a point. Um, more serious on the uh, next post, which was a book review of a new book on technology, power and development. The book is Patching Development. Information, Politics and Social Change in India by Rajesh, sorry, Rajesh Viragavan. Um, and it's, I thought, a really good and important book. And it's a deep dive into the world's biggest social protection program, India's Employment Guarantee Scheme, uh, which, uh, which uh, yeah, benefits hundreds of millions of Indians, uh, of poorest Indians, uh, that guarantees them a certain number of paid um, uh, days labor a month uh, at minimum wage and it's been really transformative in India and what he did was explored the interaction between state reformers and citizen activists as they work together or sometimes against each other to overcome the local politics of caste capture inertia and exclusion um, with, so basically there's a big money coming into this scheme everybody starts you know rotating around it moving around it and you watch the politics play out, and that's what he was doing. So Viragavan does this through what he calls an ethnography of the everyday practices of bureaucrats in Andhra Pradesh and the technologies they use to oversee NREGA, which is the name of the scheme. And what he found was this amazing endless process of cat and mouse maneuvering between bureaucrats at upper and lower levels and citizen activists empowered by a social audit process, which was part of NREGA. Uh, and I'll quote from the book here. Upper level bureaucrats use state action to neutralize the local power nexus in the villages with the support of civil society and NREGA workers. The bureaucrats in charge of implementing NREGA in Andhra Pradesh realized that the actors in the local power system were actively involved in blocking initiatives and working around systems of governance. They needed to create a dynamic strategy that constantly countered such interference. If Enrega were to succeed, each aggression had to be met with an opposing action. So this endless guerrilla warfare skirmishing goes on and you have this kind of strange alliance between the sort of senior upper bureaucrats at uh, you know, a state capital level or national level and the civil society organisations who both want Enrega to work as, as intended and local bureaucrats 
who are in hock to you know local power brokers who want to suppress wages or take the money or whatever. So the upper level do not have sufficient power to achieve this just by saying so. They've got a box clever in a process that Viragavan christens as patching. Tweaks in technology, processes and documentation to wrong foot the bad guys and get the money to the people who need it. Patching in Andhra Pradesh is mostly focused on making small changes. The local system of power is hard to transform, not because of inertia, but because of counter strategies from powerful actors at the local last mile. Patching is about the fight over power at the last mile, the untidy realities and the back and forth struggles over how work relations are managed within the Enrega bureaucracy. Now that all sounds a bit abstract, right? But listen to this. He actually, you know, he's, he did a proper ethnography and spent time. Um, and, and this is his account of a public social audit hearing organised by a local agricultural labour union. So prior to the hearing, the author and a group of other activists had worked with the union and villagers to uncover a range of corrupt practices, such as claiming multiple days wages for dead workers, which is a universal way of getting money out of social schemes, right? So I'll quote from, again, from the book. The Mukia, the president of the village council, was the first to speak. Everything is going well in this village, he assured Kamesh, one of the event organisers. All the work has been done and everybody was paid. At that point, JJSS activists read out the results from the most recent social audit, making clear the gross disparities between the Enrega's records and the social audit results. Kanchi raised his hand to speak. My name is Kanchi and I am from Boratola. Kamesh said to him, the government records say that you worked on a project to move sand from Ram, Ram's house to Krishna's. Did you do so? Yes, sir, I did work on that project. The government records show that you worked for 40 days and were paid 4,000 rupees. Is that correct? No, sir. I have not been paid that much money. I only got 1,000 rupees. Someone immediately shouted, he is lying. Kanchi was livid. He pointed towards the Mukhi and said, he is a crook. He, he and his cronies must have taken the rest of my money, all 3,000 rupees. The Mukia rushed over, grabbed the microphone and hit Kamash on the head with the stand. An immediate uproar ensued, with workers running towards the Mukia, shouting, Hit him! Hit him! Suddenly sticks appeared and people were charging up to the Mukia, who was whisked away to safety. Everyone was running and shouting and there was a minor scuffle between the Mukia's men and some of the workers. The activists clutched their documents defense defensively to keep them from being snatched away in the commotion. What a fantastic description of social audits. Makes it sound, you know, it's so much more interesting than the way it sounds when you say social audit. So back to what patching involves. It involves a constant struggle at the last mile between social auditors, bureaucrats and workers. Upper level counterparts built new monitoring technologies and processes to address flaws discovered in the system, particularly seeking to hold lower level bureaucrats accountable. Lower level bureaucrats then resisted such increased monitoring, sabotaging or bypassing technologies. In turn, their upper level counterparts built yet newer technologies and processes to deal with this resistance. So <clears throat> if I have any criticism of the book, it's that there's this great thick description of things, events like that social audit meeting I just described. Um, but the, the so what's, what do you do about this are a bit thin, but there are a couple that, that, that stood out. Upper level bureaucrats must create mechanisms to ensure against sabotage at the lower level. To do so, they need to constantly innovate by embracing and adopting new, adapting new technologies and evolving new processes 
to ensure that members of local political parties, local elites and lower level bureaucrats do not sabotage the delivery of programmes at the last mile. So basically they do have to fight this constant guerrilla struggle, but the new technologies and the constantly evolving technologies are a big ally in this. Civil society organisations need to develop a new form of politics that pays attention to the mundane minutiae of technology, drop-down boxes, links, reports and other details in governmental platforms. So both of the, the, the good guys, if you like, the upper-level bureaucrats and civil society organisations, have to be tech-savvy and tech-smart because that's an important new weapon they have in their armoury against the counter-attacks from local-level power. So I haven't got space you know, to do justice to the book. It's really worth reading. But some of the big contributions, I think the wider contributions are, it distinguishes between different layers of the state and how they can work against each other. It places the use of technology, audits, transparency, etc., squarely in this realm of cat and mouth skirmishing between these branches of the state. It reveals the political dynamics and uncertain outcome of guerrilla war of, yeah, the, in such exchanges. Uh, it shows that it's possible for a state government to learn and create participatory bureaucratic government, governance with civil society participation. But it isn't easy and it's not a one-time fix. You have to keep going back and doing it. And then finally, he had this very nice uh, line that transparency and technology are better seen as a flashlight than sunlight. You know, the usual thing is sunlight is a great disinfectant. Transparency is, is sunlight and will get rid of um, corruption. A flashlight is only useful if the holder knows where to point it. So he's talking about what do you do with the transparency in the tech? Where do you point it? Really good book. So I, I urge you to have a look at that one. Uh, third post of the week was a regular um, contributor to From Poverty to Power, my friend Max Lawson, who's head of inequality advocacy at Oxfam International. Um, and he was uh, summarizing the latest Oxfam report because the Davos crew actually met in person for the first time in a couple of years in Davos uh, and he uh, summarized the latest uh, Oxfam report which the title is billionaires made more in the 24 months of the pandemic than they did in 23 years. So here's Max. We are living through extraordinary times, extraordinarily bad for the vast majority of humanity, extraordinarily good if you're one of the richest people in the world. Normally they meet in January at Davos but that face-to-face -face meeting was postponed due to COVID. So we also have an extraordinary Davos in May. Instead of ski boots, the global elite will be picking Edelweiss and humming tunes from the sound of music. Billionaires have had dramatic periods of growth in their fortunes before, but nothing like during this pandemic, which was truly off the charts, as our report, Profiting from Pain, out this week shows. A new billionaire was minted every 30 hours. And billionaires made more in the 24 months of the pandemic than they did in the first 23 years since Forbes started publishing records of billionaire wealth, which was uh, 1987 to 2010. I was trying to imagine a sketch a bit like the famous Monty Python Four Yorkshiremen sketch where the billionaires sit around and compete. Jeff, I had an amazing pandemic. My fortune increased 100 billion. I own the Washington Post and I flew to space in a cowboy hat. Elon, ha! Huh. That's nothing. You think you had an amazing pandemic? I'm now the world's richest man, not you anymore. And more importantly, my spaceship is substantially bigger than yours. Oh, and I might be buying Twitter. In previous years, at least the world could point to a reduction in extreme poverty. The numbers of people living on less than $1.90 a day declined steadily for two decades. 
At the same time, the gap between the rich world and the developing world was steadily shrinking. This indeed was one of the main rebuttals to Oxfam's focus on inequality and billionaire wealth. We should be concerning ourselves instead with extreme poverty and that was falling. What did it matter if a few people got a lot richer, if those at the bottom were seeing an improvement in their lot? Regardless of the responses to that argument, of which there are many, sadly the reduction in extreme poverty has now been thrown into reverse. The pandemic and now the food and energy crisis have led to increases in extreme poverty for the first time in decades. The gap between rich nations and developing nations is growing for the first time in over 30 years. So for the first time in a very long time, we are seeing both things happen at once. A sharp, significant and simultaneous spike in both extreme wealth and extreme poverty. I sometimes joke that I'm glad that as the person in charge of inequality advocacy at Oxfam, my pay is not performance related. I would have been fired long ago. We are living through an historic jump in inequality, which was already too high before the pandemic. This in turn has huge and negative knock-on effects on our politics, our happiness, our safety, our health, our ability to end poverty, and to come together to stop runaway climate breakdown. It has multiple negative impacts on the other inequalities that divide us, such as gender and race. In our new report, written by the brilliant Alex Maitland, we also look at specific groups of billionaires who are doing particularly well, most notably the food billionaires and energy billionaires, who have been pocketing an extra $1 billion every two days. Global food prices have spiralled by over 30% in the past year and are set to rise still higher. And 62 new food billionaires have been created over the last two years. The super-secretive Cargill, one of the world's largest food traders, now counts 12 family members as billionaires, up from eight before the pandemic. Together with just three other companies, the Cargill company uh, family controls 70% of the global agricultural market. The solutions discussed in our report major on tax, uh, on tax, windfall taxes on corporates, emergency solidarity taxes on billionaire fortunes, and permanent wealth taxes. The debate about windfall taxes is a live one in the UK and Europe, and President Biden has revived his plans for a billionaire tax, much to the chagrin of Jeff and Elon. He is talking powerfully in favour of unions and against monopolies too. Our close allies, the Patriotic Millionaires, great, great name, and the Fight Inequality Alliance, have been leading the calls to tax the rich. And in the ultimate man-bites-dog story, we saw millionaires protesting outside Davos, calling for higher taxation. As always, we will keep fighting. So Max has been campaigning on inequality since, you know, since I've known him for 15 years or so, and uh, he just will not let go. He's a Rottweiler and all power to him. Final post uh, of the week was by somebody who is an ex-famer. That means ex-Oxfam. Someone called Maya Mailer. And she um, wrote a post called Why Mothers Are Taking the Fight for Climate Action to Lloyds of London. In torrential rain, and it really was torrential. The photos are horrific. I put one up on the blog. In torrential rain, I clutched my three-year-old daughter's little hand. I was outside Lloyds of London, one of the world's biggest insurers of fossil fuels with a group of parents, toddlers, and a giant papier-mâché oil drum filled with dying flowers. It was almost Father's Day 2021. We chanted and sang and called on Lloyd's chair and father of four, Bruce Carnegie Brown, to stop insuring dangerous fossil fuel projects for the sake of all our kids. 
Last week ahead of Lloyd's AGM, I was back at Lloyd's HQ, but this time inside the building meeting Carnegie Brown face to face alongside other mothers from Mothers Rise Up and Parents for Future UK. We were one of the first climate campaign groups to secure a meeting with the chair. Why were we there? Why were we sorry, why were the, we there? Why is that so hard to say? Because the actions of Lloyd's Marketplace are putting all our children's futures on the line. We looked Carnegie Brown in the eye and urged him to do everything within his power to stop Lloyd's ensuring some of the world's dirtiest fossil fuel projects. We told him that the time had come for brave leadership. Carnegie Brown assured us he accepted the severity of the climate crisis, the science and the need for a transition. But it was a question of pace. The transition away from fossil fuels must be orderly and managed. Lloyd's needed to bring its stakeholders with it. The chair of Lloyd's claimed he was doing everything within his gift. Excuse me, just to stop that bleeping. All right, there we go. Everything within his gift. At moments, he appeared genuinely conflicted. He hinted that we should focus our effort on the UK government, while also conceding that it moved too slowly and such an approach was unlikely to bear fruit. He may be on a journey, but sitting there with him, it was clear to us that he was and is still trapped by a system that prioritises profit above all else. Is trapped by what the Lloyd's marketplace deems is possible, rather than what is needed. Just 30 minutes before our meeting began, Lloyd's shared their new environmental school and governance report, social, environmental social and governance report. That policy does not reflect Carnegie's claim, Carnegie Brown's claim to take the science seriously. It is a step backward from their already flawed 2020 plan. It merely encourages Lloyd's member syndicates to cease ensuring the most polluting forms of energy, coal, oil sands and Arctic energy. It says little of substance about mainstream oil and gas. Our collaborators at the Ensure Our Future campaign describe the report as exemplifying some of the worst forms of corporate greenwash. The International Energy Agency, a small C conservative group that advises governments on energy policy, warned in a landmark report almost a year ago today that there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure if we are to have a fighting chance of a safe climate. Scientists are saying it is now or never to limit global overheating to 1.5 centigrade. I've been around the block, but in the face of such dire warnings, it shocks me to my core that corporations such as Lloyd's continue to find loopholes and excuses to ensure for fossil fuels. Lloyds of London is huge and influential, underwriting 40% of the energy market. If its marketplace were to stop ensuring coal, tar sands and new fossil fuel infrastructure, it would send shockwaves across the industry. Many of these projects would not go ahead, making a huge difference to cutting carbon pollution and giving our kids a chance. Take the East African crude oil pipeline, EACOP. Seven insurers, including the world's top four reinsurers, have ruled out underwriting EACOP because of its colossal climate impacts. By contrast, Lloyds has refused to rule it, rule it out and has not even responded to a series of letters from African civil society groups expressing their deep misgivings about the project. If completed, the 900 mile long pipeline would devastate communities and nature across Uganda and Tanzania and will gen generate 34 million extra tonnes of carbon emissions each year. It has already displaced some 7,000 farmers from their land. As the Kenyan co coordinator of the Stop EACOP campaign, Omar Elmwai, says, it is a crazy idea, to be honest. 
If there are any benefits, they're going to go to the project's proponents, not the people of Uganda and Tanzania. I pressed Carnegie Brown on EACOP in the meeting, but he wouldn't comment on specific risks. But without getting into specifics, how can we ever know that Lloyd's is acting in good faith? Without specifics, Lloyd's, like too many other corporations, can hide behind generalities. Every single day, the mums of mothers rise up, rack our collective brain. How the heck can we convince Carnegie Brown and corporate bosses like him to use their power to protect our precious threatened planet? We suspect he only met with us because we went for his Achilles heel, his love of cricket. We sent him a handmade cricket meets climate themed advent calendar last December, complete with miniature mum protesters, which finally elicited a direct response from him. This is lovely. There's a photo on the, on the blog, but there's other photos. They made these gorgeous little, um, you know, pictures of people sitting on a pile of coal at a cricket match. And it was just a really nice example of craftivism which is uh, this kind of use of crafts to break through the kind of dialogue of the deaf aspect of, of campaigning. After the meeting, I raced home to celebrate my youngest daughter's fourth birthday. Amid the cake and chaos, I felt waves of frustration that we hadn't been able to achieve more. But like so many of my fellow parents, I feel determined. Carnegie Brown and Lloyd's need to know that we won't go away. Warm words are not enough. It's concrete action to end fossil fuel that matters. The pressure will only continue to grow. We are working with mums in Australia and India, parents in Poland and organisers across Africa who feel the same way. This is about our children. It's about our shared home. It's about everything. Mothers Rise, Mothers Rise Up will be planning a Mary Poppins themed <laughs> dance extravaganza, oh my word, outside Lloyds of London on Monday the 13th of June. If you're around on Monday the 13th of June, you've got to be there. A Mary Poppins themed dance extravaganza wild if you're interested in joining or supporting please email mothersriseup at gmail.com sadly i'm i'm out of the country um but i think if, if you're a man and you want to support dick van dyke guys go with uh coal dust on your face and a really bad english accent make it there uh, and that's from maya who is co-founder of mothers rise up and uh former head of humanitarian campaigns and policy at oxfam great post Great piece of campaigning, great imagination. Have a good weekend, everyone.